Welcome back to The Psychology PhD, a podcast produced by students here in the Columbia University Psychology Department, where we talk about graduate programs in psych. My name is Emily Nakawita, and I'm a fifth-year student here in our program. As a friendly reminder, in this season, we're having interviews with other students in our program, so you can hear a bit more about their backgrounds and their experiences before pursuing PhD programs in psych. And it really highlights that there are so many different ways to end up in a program like ours. Today, we'll be talking to Margot Vink, a fourth-year PhD student who primarily works with um, Dr. Valerie Purdy-Greenaway in the Laboratory for Intergroup Relations and the Social Mind here at Columbia. Welcome, Margot. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. So, Margot, uh, to start off, I'd love if you could just dive into kind of a, a broad strokes view of what your path to grad school looked like. <clears throat> yeah, so I actually took my sweet time to decide if I wanted to go to grad school. So I did my undergraduate in the Netherlands, um, where I'm originally from. I did like a three-year undergrad degree there, which is normal there. And then I actually took a gap year because I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go more the applied psychology side or more the research side. So in the Netherlands, you have a thing that you have something called a research master or more an applied master program. So it's slightly different. So I took a year off, studied in that year in South Korea, I took some classes there, more applied psych classes. During that year, I really found out that I researched, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to commit to a PhD. So I went back to Amsterdam and just did the research master to really like see what I wanted to do after that. And then... Um, I did that. And then in my last year of my, actually my master there, I worked in corporate for a little bit. I did an internship at Deloitte to figure out if that was something for me. And then when I figured out that was also not for me, that's when I decided to really like focus on the research and do the PhD. So I took my sweet time between like my undergrad degree and like applying and starting grad school. There was like five years or something. That makes so sense. Well, you know Four what? Five years. Yeah. So many of the people that we're talking to and myself included kind of had roundabout paths or did different things first, mm -hmm. uh, which, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, but I think there's actually a real benefit in exploring a few different things or getting some working experience um, before diving into a program like this, because yeah. uh, it can be, uh, it has its own set of kind of challenges um, and uh, difficulties um, without kind of getting some of that experience first. And I would also say you learn opposite. I learned a lot of stuff, like whether I was in Deloitte, like doing some, you know, like presentational stuff or that's like really a big thing there that was really helpful in your grad school too. So I don't think it's, you know, like wasted time in general. And you probably, from what I, like, I know you enough to think that you probably think of that like in the same way. Totally, so. totally. So before we dive into all of that, um, you made a distinction between research uh, or basic research and applied psychology. And I realized that a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with this distinction if they're kind of newer to the field. So would you mind talking a little bit about what the differences are um, between those two areas? Yeah. So when I think of more applied psychology, it's a little bit more things like, let's say you want to be an organizational psychologist. So you work at your company. So you like apply theories on all from psychology to like, let's say your HR and managing and like hiring practices. Whereas for us, research, as we just seen, is more really focused on like generating new findings and ideas. I would almost say you could also do it in a company, uh -huh. but it's a little bit more like the numeric stuff, you know, developing a hypothesis. So like my husband actually have had an applied degree in psychology where he focused a lot you know, on group dynamics. How do you do assessment for companies? Um, there's, a, there's a lot more like practical skills and using the knowledge you're gaining your degree to sort of like go out there and make decisions about psychological phenomenon, whereas research is more like, you know, crunching the numbers, setting up the studies and figuring out how to find out stuff. 
I think both of them you can do in and outside of a PhD. There are people, particularly like if you go into management departments where there are a lot of social psychologists, they're often a little bit more applied research. Mm. But like, you know, like we in the flag department here are a little bit more like this sort of fundamental sort of research stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I was at Deloitte, I also worked actually as a research intern. It was a lot more like applied research. So how can we improve sort of things in the company relying on psychological theories and knowledge? Very cool. And so it might be helpful to clarify that um, it seems like for you, at least, to secure that kind of applied position where you're maybe even working with theories, but uh, not necessarily doing the research yourself in an academic institution, you were able to secure that role without a graduate or at least a PhD uh, in psych. Is that right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's also the structures are slightly different in Europe, but you do the master before the PhD, so they're always separate degrees. But I definitely see, and I know a lot of people um, who do them without having to have to go to grad school. Yeah. I think that's and really helpful. And I think helpful. a lot of companies also offer, you know, trainings and stuff like that. But usually just knowing a little bit about human function can be very helpful like when you are an HR professional, for example. Totally. When you deal with people, you're human resources or human capital like that's what you do yeah 100 percent. well i think it's good to call that out though because i think a lot of the time people don't realize that uh or they think oh i should pursue a phd because i want to have say maybe that kind of a job um and that's a big commitment to pursue a phd when maybe you don't necessarily need the phd like you were saying maybe a master suffices maybe even just an undergrad with the right work training so um maybe that's kind of a, a good impetus for people who are listening to think about what are the desired careers they want to have at the end of this and mm-hmm. kind of reverse engineer which degrees are required for those careers rather than just Absolutely. assuming you need to to dive into something like a doctorate. Yeah, I think the PhD for a lot of positions, especially in corporate, are not necessarily needed on my experiences and perceptions. Yeah, that's I mean, also I've seen, been... you know, undergrads in the lab, like we work share a lab of, like we have seen undergrads without going to a PhD, like have very satisfactory jobs as yeah. well with their PhD, like undergrad um, degrees only. Totally. So it sounds like based on what you've shared so far, you didn't necessarily know immediately when you were an undergrad that you wanted to pursue a PhD. So when exactly in that process did it really hit you? You know, okay, I'm going to make the decision to apply to programs. Uh, and what do you think was really the spark that led to that decision? Yeah, so actually when I started undergrad, I had never heard of a PhD. Like, I didn't even know it exists. So, like, none of my family, like, really has gone to university or anything. So I'm really the first one to sort of, like, make that staff to higher education in general. Um, and I actually was selected into the honors program back in Amsterdam, which meant I could take extra classes. And one of the classes I took was actually in the psych department with a professor who offered also research internship. And through that, I got to learn about PhDs and I had to work with PhD students, which sort of opened this whole world. Like, oh, I can oh, do this cool. research stuff, which I really enjoy potentially as a career. Because I had never even thought about how do you become a professor. So that was a really right moment sort of thing for me. Like, you know, this is something I actually really enjoy. And he really helped me expose to all those things. So I kind of stumbled almost upon it to say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like I said, like, I wasn't really sure after what I wanted to do because the research thing was just pretty new to me. You know, I enjoyed my bachelor thesis, like all those kind of things but do I want to do it for a living so I was also really into cultural psych so that's when I moved to South Korea just for like an exchange program for half a year and actually when I was there too I looked at a lot of like marketing consumer psych classes or UX design type of classes um, but as part as like you know in the US too you have to do the sort of the undergrad or the participation credits and I actually ended up talking with some of the PhD students there and 
some of the conversations lasted a little bit too long even for them but they missed the next participant but just for me having that experience of like you know getting really into these super exciting conversations people who shared my passion for certain topics that really made me decide to go back to Amsterdam to pursue the research master degree because I knew I could get into the program because I did you know really well in the undergrad I knew the professors so and they were very happy to like accept me back in um and yeah during that time I still as I told you I wasn't really sure until I actually tried the corporate path which was my other option um and didn't really feel like I fitted there and I had a really good experience in my master program like personally um and then there was the conversation do you want to do like you know in Europe do you want to do it abroad at the time my partner is not from Europe so we both decided it made more sense to go to an English-speaking country because it would be better for both of us and job opportunities which then made me apply to like PhDs in the States. So that's sort of my whole journey. There's a lot of like different elements just sort of coming around. But yeah, I definitely did not go in. I didn't even know PhD existed. Totally. It was just through this one random class where I got the exposure and it's sort of like, wow, actually, I didn't know this could be a career, but this is like stuff I really enjoy doing. And I've always even in, you know, high school was really into the science part of stuff. That's so great. Well, there are a bunch of kind of aspects of what you've shared that I want to dive into. Um, but the first, which is just kind of a minor point, uh, but perhaps worth calling out for some of our listeners, is that so you were mentioning that it was through in your undergraduate career, in the courses you were taking, you needed to participate in studies kind of as a study subject for course credits. Uh, and so mm-hmm. for anyone who's listening um, who wasn't a psychology uh, undergraduate uh, yourself, um, this is kind of a, a common sort of thing you'll have to do in psych undergrad programs. Um, But it actually highlights something that I hadn't really thought about before, which is if you are currently not in that kind of a program, one way to kind of get access to these PhD students and foster those connections or hear more about what they're doing is to volunteer to participate in their research, uh, whether or not it's for course credit. Um, What do you think about that, Margot? It actually sounds like kind of an interesting strategy. Because like, you know, yeah, no, and also like we have to, usually it's a requirement that nearly everybody will be asked, the researchers have to tell you what the study was about, that you can ask questions and stuff, which is also a really great way to sort of learn about, you know, how research is done or how like we think about stuff in psych particularly, because social sciences are not all the same. Psych is, I think, very experimentally driven, which is something that attracted me a lot to psychology, the experimental part of it. Um... Yeah, it's just a good way to sort of like, you know, get access to people and then we'll, we'll talk with you about our research. Like, I love talking about my research. I think Emily loves talking about her research. Totally. If undergrad is interested afterwards or just even an undergrad, just anyone. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's, I think it's a good way to sort of get a sense of what people are doing. Yeah, that's such a great suggestion. Um, so kind of shifting back to the decision to apply, a lot of the other people that we've spoken to so far this season have shared that you know, they were worried about like, oh, is this the right year for me to apply? Should I wait another year? Did you find that you had any of that hesitation about deciding when exactly was the right kind of application cycle for you? Or was it more of just a fluid, you know, I've done my undergrad and master's, then you had the time at Deloitte and you just figured it was naturally the next time to go? It was naturally, and I talked with some professors at my university who were actually from the States and that are on their like, PhDs here, if I was like, going to be a competitive applicant, and they're like, just go for it. I didn't necessarily expect to get in the first round because there's so much noise in the system. I don't come from like you know a well-known international school necessarily, so that like, you know, makes a little bit of a hassle. I didn't have any papers published. 
uh, any po like poster conference presentations because it's not that common in like Europe to just do that during your master's already. Sure. Um, but I figured, you know, let me just apply to seven programs I'm really interested in. Um, I was within my budget at the time. And if I get in, it's great. And if not, I will try another year. Like, um, so it was just more like, if it happens, it happens. And if not, like, you know, I know I have like a pay, like my master's thesis that I could like brand as a pay rest up to make myself more competitive the next cycle. Totally. Yeah, because they said, you know, like, you were definitely like competitive. Um, just give it a shot. Like, I was like, okay. Yeah, that's a theme that's come up in so many of these different conversations we've had. Like, everyone was kind of feeling at the you know time that they applied like oh i'm not sure if it'll work out it might be a year too early but they were like you know well, i'll give it a shot anyway and here we all are right um yeah and there's so much noise in the system like even is this person you want to work with hiring that year or like is there some other thing going on in the department that they may hire the next year or there's all sorts of difference things that even if you're the perfect applicant that are out of your control that may like vary year to year that's so um, right yeah yeah so yeah people are like just apply because you never know if this person you want to work with already takes a student and the next year they don't take a student or something like um but yeah i was very selective also for financial reasons to only apply to like six seven schools i was like, really interested in um and nothing more because i'm like you know next cycle i'm going to be a better applicant anyway so let's just give it a shot but yeah it worked out um that's all i can say i was just yeah. i guess yeah. Hardly lucky too. And yeah, it worked out. So I think there's luck in there for all of us who end up in a program like this, just because, you know, um, we can all do everything we can to get prepared. But like you said, it's a bit of a numbers game and you just never know. Um, so I think there's definitely that aspect of luck that, that comes into play for all of us, for sure. Yeah. And I was sort of because I was also sort of in between jobs in that given year, I was like, you know, like that's just apply because it makes it a little bit like clearer for everybody involved, my partner and whatever. And totally if not. It's we can live with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to dive back into uh, the experience of applying as an international student. So you were mentioning that um, like one of the considerations was finding an English language uh, kind of country to pursue your PhD in. I'm just curious, is there anything else that you think you think would might be helpful uh, in sharing about your journey for other international students who are thinking about applying to programs here in the U.S. or yeah, elsewhere? So I would say, no, definitely, because I think the European system where I'm like really used to is very different from the American system than the European system, at least for most countries that I'm familiar with, you're usually working on a very specific grant that your advisor will have whereas the american system you usually have to some extent more freedom in what you really want to pursue and so the way you are applying is very different the same way in europe you kind of have to have the masters prior to the phd and the phd is somewhat shorter um and then here it's sort of like combined in the states it would say so you get your master often not always along the way of your phd where there's the option to do that so that's one big difference, but then also things like teaching requirements can be different. Um, but particularly the products you'll be working on tend to be very tight because they're often tied to a grant that you can't really move around too much from. So you have to work on that specific line of research, whereas at least I've been in the States in my PhD have had a lot more space to sort of shape part of what I do. And even if your advisor has a grant, you often have some freedom to do things on the side or work around that and I think in our program it's even a requirement to work with other faculty so you just have a little bit more freedom and really pursuing your own thing so yeah that's one of the biggest differences as well the other thing I would say is like taking classes also really varies in the European system versus like the American <laughs> system sometimes when you say that the amount how, you take how does... as well as uh, okay as well so... as the required amounts 
Got it. Got it. So, do, and would you generally say that you need to take more classes here in the U.S.? Is that the sense that you have? I would say because the master and PhD are separate, you will take a lot more classes in a master in Europe, I would say. Like, the best has been my experience. So you have a sort of foundation already before you do the PhD. So the classes you either take during the PhD will be very different than here. Whereas I feel like here, you know, they take, we take seminars, a sort of lower level seminars sometimes, or we take a mix with undergraduates. It's not uncommon. Or we take, you know, more of a sort of an intro staff class sometimes even that's sort of repeated. Like those you wouldn't really find because you're assumed that you took those in your master degree already. Yeah. So it's sort of like the classes you'll take will be different. And they're not always offered within the university either. Like I know in the Netherlands, they have like this sort of across university sort of class thing. And so you have like basically a weekly workshop. You'll go to a university in the country and you just have like a week of class and then you go back to do your research. Oh, that's so interesting. So just the structure is very, very different. And the expectations can be slightly different as well. Like I have one of my really close friends in a PhD in Belgium. And for her to get her PhD, she has to like publish a paper. Ah. That is like the requirement. But we don't have that at all. You know what I mean? We can get out of the PhD just doing the state of defense and never publish a paper, which is not my goal. But you, so the requirements can be quite different as well as the expectations of what you're doing for research. Are you doing your own research? Are you doing your advisor's research? More like sort of what is that balance? Yeah. Oh, that's for so interesting. For teaching, it really varies per university, I would say. Some like have you teach, some don't. Um, but yeah, that's like the main differences I would say. Interesting. So they are I, very different. Yes, it really sounds like The path like is it. very different. Totally. Is your sense that it's possible to pursue careers after your PhD in, for instance, Europe or Asia with a U.S.-based PhD and vice versa? Or do you have the sense that when you were making your decision about where to pursue your PhD, you would then be... Uh, Stuck is kind of a yucky word, but but um, there kind of for for the long term based on that decision. I think it varies a little bit. So I've actually had a conversation with somebody about this recently. It varies like which countries are very familiar with the European schools and names and stuff. So I asked them, so from Israel yesterday, and apparently they're very familiar with other good schools. But let's say I want to stay in the U.S. and I had a European degree, they probably have no clue where I'm from and what I did. You know what I mean? So it varies a little bit per country, but it also, I would say, depends per institute in the U.S. So we have like top programs, let's say, I'm not going to say names, there are some of the top schools in the U.S. for psychology that people in Europe would also be like, where did you go? Like, I cannot point this on the map, but if you go to like a famous school, they'll probably know what it is. So I would say it goes both way and name value is just a big thing and part of that. Yeah, which is such a bummer. If that makes but, sense. Uh, like an unfortunate reality, right? So that was something when I lived in Asia as well. Like one of the things I had, nobody knew my school name. Um, but like now they know where I'm at because Colombia has, you know, a lot of a brand value to say so. Um, but vice versa, like when I actually went to Colombia, my family was like, do you speak Spanish? Because they thought <laughs> I would go to the country Colombia. They yeah, had no yeah. idea what it was. And so that's sort of like a thing to sort of like compare that like not everybody in another part of the world would know even like the name Columbia or what it means, even if they are, you know, like a famous school across the world. So it kind of varies, I would say. Yeah. But would you um, say and different that... schools have different values, you know, like yeah. different departments. Like if you go to certain business schools, certain European schools, they'll know or like people in the field will often know what is a good school or like a good, well-known established program. Yeah. But when it comes down to making your decision about where exactly to apply, 
how would you weight those kinds of concerns about like the prestige or the name, you know, brand name value of the university versus say your fit with your advisor? I would definitely, I mean, I think fit is for me was one of the biggest thing. And I was just lucky that I had a good fit with somebody at Columbia. Um, but I do think it really matters depending on what your long-term um, goals are. So like if you want to stay in academia, people everywhere will know what the sort of the top training programs are, whether you're in Europe or not. Like you'll see people coming from Europe to do postdocs or professor jobs in the States as well. Um, but if you want to go to more like, let's say the corporate world, it's a little bit of a different game because they don't know, you know, what is a good PhD program? What is that even? Sure. And which are the top schools? So they, they are more sensitive to different things. Um, so I would say it depends a little bit on your long-term goals. Like, you know, there's certain advisors that are just like really well-known and they may not work at the top school. But if you want to apply for an academic job, that really matters. If you want to apply for a corporate job, nobody knows if your advisor is a great researcher or not, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, that does make so sense. So that's sort of what I would say is the sort of difference, a little bit like what you think your long-term goals are. That's really great advice. Again, I but feel yeah, like and you keep circling back to that. To like, make it more enjoyable, the fit is really important, I would yes. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally agree that, that the fit is really, really important, whether or not it's your kind of number one criterion. Um, definitely has a huge impact on what your experience as a PhD student will be like, for sure. Um, so why don't we take a minute to kind of pivot away from applications. I'd love to hear more about, now that you're in a PhD program, what it is that you study, uh, both kind of the topics or theories and the methods that you use. Mm -hmm. So I think most of my research would have focused about the idea, like how do we perceive, understand, and respond to the status quo, particularly when it pertains to inequalities. Um, so that's sort of what I've been mainly working on. And I like a lot of different methods. That's sort of like a thing I personally enjoy. You don't have to be like that. Um, so I work with archival data and time series type of stuff I'm working on. Um, I have like basic experiments. I work with some big data where we look sort of spatial where things are occurring in space. And more recently, I've started a project on more how do we perceive groups of people um, in the context of inequality. So it's very like across a big sort of every field of psychology. I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that because you have to learn so many methods and skills which takes a lot of time. Sure. Um, but that's just something I really enjoy doing. Just think about the same sort of question from many different angles. That's so helpful. Um, for uh, people who are listening who may not be familiar with the specifics of these different types of data, would you mind for a second just going into uh, from a really kind of high level, like what is archival data? What is big data? Um, and how does that differ from, say, what you might get from an experiment? Mm -hmm. So when I use archival data, so like you can look at people have been saying historically over time, so like you know, are there sort of themes that presidents have been saying across the years in the U.S. and what can we infer from that? So are the things they're saying different over time, and are there maybe things happening when those shifts happen, or like are we on a certain sort of cultural trajectory? Sure. Um, so you're actually looking at what people said in like speeches or tweets mm -hmm. or books or things like that. Yep. So that's one way to sort of get what people are saying and I can sort of infer something about what they're potentially have been thinking or have been focusing on or like what is important to them. At the same time, that's like one product I have. Another product, and like what does it link to? So artists and like societal phenomena that sort of associated with changes in speech over time. Or that's so you know, interesting. Thinking. Yeah. Another product is more like how things are happening in space. So if you're exposed to certain types of environment, does that influence your behavior in certain ways? So you can get like data from the census um, or other places and sort of see if certain sort of behaviors are associated with certain environments. 
This is not as commonly done in psychology, but it's sort of an area that's like sort of developing rapidly within psychology. Um, so it's often more done on like political science and social and like sociology. But I think for psychology, you know, like we also study what people think and people are part of their environments, whether it's your social environment or your physical environment, cultural environment is a big thing that I'm interested in as well. Um, so like, how does that impact you? And an experiment is, you know, like we go to the lab and we give you a manipulation of some sort, like we change something in your environment or not. And that sort of thing. So if you can answer very different questions from them. So experiments, we often try to get causality, I would say. If I change this one thing in your environment, do you respond to a different thing? Whereas with the big data, I can sort of like look at the geographic data, I can look at it more across different people and have almost a more natural type of sense of what may be happening. Because the experiment is so confined to a lab setting, it's so specific, it's on like really how you often, you know, live in your daily life. So if the two are congruent, it, it tells you a very interesting story usually. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for going into that. That's really helpful. And I feel like it's amazing that you were doing all of these different uh, kinds yeah, of studies yourself. It takes a lot of time to learn. Um, but I think it's actually a great intro for any any people who are listening or watching who aren't uh, kind of baked into the psychology space themselves already. It actually highlights... Um, a lot of people might just specialize in one of those types of data collection, uh, but it's a great summary of a few different ways that psychologists um, and other social scientists uh, yeah, can, and I can think study. One thing yeah, from me I would think. add, like when you go to your PhD or when you're applying for PhD, there is a thing that every mentor has a certain way of like they do research. So some people are more focused on the big data. Some people really love experiments. Some people do more survey stuff, or we also people do like more studies over time and see how they change across and between people. And so when you apply to programs, I would also say like, you know, that's a thing you can actually look for an advisor. Um, we have people in the faculty too, right, who are very like focused on the sort of more overtime type of studies and they don't do as much of the sort of more clean experimental things as like another lab may do them. That's so right. if you have an interest in a sort of method, I would say that's something I wish I had paid more attention to when I applied because it's actually like a big thing that I really enjoy. Um, and I ended up with somebody who's also very open to these different methods and finds them very excited, but not every advisor necessarily likes to do many crazy different methods and studies because they are, you know, not everybody has expertise on them and feels comfortable supervising them. Yeah, exactly. No, that's such great advice to really focus on not just topics you're studying or that you would be studying with a particular advisor, but the methods they use as well. Um, that's really great. So to kind of pivot again, uh, I'd love to hear more about your experience as a PhD student and specifically what you like most about being a PhD student and what you dislike most about being a PhD student. So, I mean, the dislike is a little bit easy. I like many things. So the one the one thing I struggle the most with as a PhD and as part, as you probably have figured out with what I do, is how unstructured it is because I come from the more structured European PhDs. And, you know, we don't even pick our own classes in undergrad. Like, we have a set program. So it's very clear what you have to do and where you have to go. But because I have so many different things I find interesting, I sort of like have a tendency to just like go really broad and wave out too much. So that's something what I find the most, how to say, tough also on myself is like keep reeling myself in and keep being focused. And I think usually in a PhD, you have a lot of freedom. And it's sort of like, how do you make most use of your time where you're not know exactly what you're doing and what is the best thing to do, which is where your advisor usually will if you have a nice advisor come in, 
Um, I'm definitely more in sync in that now, but because I'm so, you know, I want to do archival and now I want to do spatial and now I suddenly have to learn all these stats I don't know and it takes me actually quite some time to learn. Um, that sort of thing I sort of struggle with and it's like there's also always the constant pressure like, you know, because there's so much unstructured time and unstructured goals, like I should always feel like you have to do something else. You have to be reading that one more paper. Um, instead of turning that voice in your head off can be a little bit sometimes challenging that like, you know, I actually need my time off. I need to take a break and not read that one paper. That's probably wouldn't even matter that much for your, you know, thing. So that's the thing I would say is what I, I was like, I struggled the most with and therefore dislike, but at the same sure. time, I love the freedom. That yeah. was one of the big reasons for me to come here because that's the thing I forgot to mention in Europe. There's, because there's only so many funded PhDs, because there's only so many grants given, there are a very limited number of opportunities that you can actually get into a PhD as well. Because there may just not be a project around on a topic you like, um, which was one of the things some of actually my friends have like walked into and they did end up not getting a PhD because it was just nothing that really fit to them. So yeah. I love the freedom at the same time. I love I can just pursue the things I find interesting as long as like you get like an advisor to be enthusiastic about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually love like talking with people and having people with shared interests and enthusiasm about self. And I like I said, like I actually enjoy stats and methods and learning about that as well, which is something you will happily do in your PhD. Totally. Totally. If that makes sense. So for me, just like having I love learning, as you probably noticed. Um, and that's like something I really get to do on a daily basis. Like just read something new, figure out a new method or a new stats technique, or just learn something from even my data, basically, like all those types of things. Yep. Which also absolutely. makes me not too great at like sticking to a writing schedule <laughs> because I'm so like, you know, motivated by just learning. And when I learn, I sort of like lose interest, which is a little bit of like not a great habit, but yeah. Yeah. I struggle I'm with getting the same better thing at myself. Writing. Yes, yes, yes. Writing is... Some people love it. Um, I am not one of those people, but you know, we all have the things we like to do more about what we do in this world um, and the, mm -hmm. the aspects of it that we love less. Uh, I feel yeah, like if but I, I think could just... also yeah. yeah, no, no, go I on. think it also underscores how many like different ways you can do a PhD. Not everybody has to learn like, you know, 12 different ways to study the same topic. Like, there's people who do this one thing and they do it really well. And that's also really important to have those people yeah. in PhDs. Totally. And I think it's helpful to know that not everybody loves every piece of the process, but you can still be successful. So some people love uh, theory and like diving into those types of ideas. And some people don't love that so much. Some people love designing experiments. Some people don't love that so much. Some people love stats and analyzing data and others don't. Some people love coding and others don't. Some people love writing and others don't, but somehow we're all here um, and, and making it work. So um, if there's anyone out there thinking like, ugh, like I think I'd really enjoy a PhD, but I'm just not so great at kind of, you know, this aspect of it. Um, I think it's really just worth highlighting that that's that's totally normal. We all have our different strengths and uh, weaknesses and different likes and dislikes. Um, and I guess that's probably true of any any job out there too, right? Yeah, and I think also like the PhD gives you some freedoms that have also focused a little bit more on certain parts you're interested in. Even like, if like, you know, like I have been had the opportunity to take a lot of SAS classes because I that's something I like. Um, so I've gone out to do that and I also have had the freedom as long as I can make the case why it's useful but you know like stats is always useful for research yeah um, to sort of do that whereas other people don't have to do that they may just indeed be more and there's people like who want to do outreach stuff for example during their PhD as well and there's also freedom to do that 
So I think there is some liberty in like, you know, how you distribute your time to some extent that you can focus on the things you enjoy more. Yeah. Um, and even for writing, like I write in my second language, I'm far from a perfect writer, you know what I mean? Uh, but like still be like, it's something I have to do and I do it. It's just not something like that I find the most enjoyable thing of my day, but I just schedule some time. I do it. And then, um, you know, you just get over with it. But like you said, like it's something in every job. There's just things you have to get over. Yeah. 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 Sometimes you just have to like, yeah, make the time and force it to happen. And that's just part of life, right? Um, I mean, we have to write a dissertation in the end of like, God, how something <laughs> We pages. do. We do. So, yeah. Can't avoid it. <laughs> All right. So, circling back to kind of your path as a whole, is there anything that if you could go back in time and do it differently that you would? I actually don't think so because I've had so many, I took the time to like really have this broad experience to really figure like what is the right thing for me now. And sure, like, you know, having knowledge that like I was started my PhD just before COVID started, which is not a great time. And yeah, if I had known all those things, maybe I would have delayed, but there was no way of knowing at the time that those things would happen. Totally. Um, so like given the knowledge I had each phase in my life when I was deciding those things, I think for me, it totally made sense. Maybe application specific. I mean, one thing I didn't do and which I could have done because it's actually really relevant to my research is like apply to like different departments other than side, like a business school or something. Because I think like I could have been a good fit there as well. Yeah. And partly because I became from a, I came from a department that was also very like organizational, psych heavy, if that makes sense. Um, I could have like easily moved over. Like my master's thesis and as I focus on leadership, which is like the most school topic ever and i never like considered those uh, like that path as well um i don't regret it because i'm like in the right place now and actually columbia is very sort of you know fluid with the business school if that makes sense um and most of the people i work with do have actually joined appointments weirdly so i'm still sort of there in some way um but yeah i think i would have that was maybe the only thing i would have changed but other than that like i think just having go to those extra steps and really having taken my time to know that this is the right thing for me now really has been helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful to know. And so I guess I so one... don't rush. Don't rush the decision. <laughs> that's all I would say. Yeah, totally. If you can afford it, like don't rush the decision. I think that's great advice. Um, and so I guess that is a piece of advice. What I was going to ask is kind of as a final wrap up question, if there were one piece of advice you could give to aspiring PhD students, what would it be? And if that's it, that can yeah. be it. But if there's anything else you want no, to toss No, I think that in. is it. I would say don't rush the decision, but really figure out, like, as some faculty in this department, like, what your burning issue is or the thing that you have repeatedly questions on. And for me, you know, I've had a sort of theme about, like, inequality growing up in Netherlands, which is a very different type of, you know, economic type of system in the U.S. And then I moved to South Korea, where it's, like, a very more hierarchical society just by culturally um and they also have sort of inequality issues like for me there's been a repeating theme in like the things i'm interested in and having had all those different experiences only reinforceably that this is the topic i'm also interested in um as well sort of knowing what else and i think another thing just having had things in corporate or things else and like you know the world outside of academia is also not perfect um which really sort of helps me on also sort of like process on like sort of the weird dynamics universities sometimes have because they're different but like you also have weird dynamics in corporates that are not perfect yeah um totally. so yeah, i would say don't feel the pressure to have to start grad school because there's many things that you can do we as we discussed earlier without a grad school degree or even a master degree um so just yeah just like 
don't rush into the decision um, because there's many other ways you can do it. And even like, I think in our program too, we have had people who have had other careers before and prior and at a later point in time, I think we have a fair amount of those. Yeah, including um, so there's myself. not just like one linear <laughs> path, you know what I mean, to go yeah. to grad school. Exactly. Yeah, that's Don't the feel whole like point. That's the path. That's the whole point of the series. So that's a perfect piece of advice and kind of a perfect way, I think, to wrap up our conversation. Margo, thank you so much for taking the time to Thanks talk to us today. Thanks for having me. This was so great. Thanks again, Margo. To receive notifications when new episodes of this podcast are released, definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, or to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Uh, you're also welcome to join our email list to receive an email each time we release a new episode. And finally, if you found this interview with Margo to be helpful, please consider liking the episode on YouTube or rating and reviewing the show in your preferred podcast app. We'll see you next time.